0: Good
1: afternoon and welcome, and we are going to look at two sets of numbers, one better than expected and one much worse and alarming. By the time the deadline passed last Friday, uh, 372 candidates were certified by Toronto City Clerk to run in the next municipal election. And that is more than we expected. And there are no wards where a councillor candidate is running unopposed, though that is the case for two school board seats. Meanwhile, More evidence that Vision Zero is not working. Now, these numbers are province-wide. 259 people killed this year in collisions on the roads, waterways, and trails. 19 in the last week alone. And bicycle fatalities, wow, up from two last year to eight, eight this year. And speaking of waterways, what about last weekend's ferry crash and that very weird turnaround from authorities saying that service interruptions would last for the rest of the summer to was saying everything's fine, we're back to normal. Uh, what prompted that? Uh, people, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740.
0: And now, it's time to tune into the town.
1: And now I'm joined by Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of BlogTO, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and David Crombie, former Mayor of Toronto. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. So, we'll start with Karen. Uh, What do you think of the final number of people who registered? I think it's
2: very encouraging, actually. Um, and I, I think part of the, that number being as high as it is is because of the the fact that so many councillors, for whatever reasons, decided not to run again. And so I think it's good for the city. I think it's good to see so much interest in running uh, for the municipal seats. Um, and I and I think it uh, it just shows that there is uh, you know quite a bit of interest in making sure the city runs well, which I think is all good. David.
3: With Karen, it was uh, quite a bit kind of a scare the last couple of weeks when we saw fewer and fewer names and dramatically so but uh, there are a number of people who decided either late to do so or simply decided late to announce but uh, it's certainly good news there's lots for the city council to do over the next four years
4: Lauren, I mean, I was surprised I, with the low number initially, and and also delighted to see that people are are wanting to participate in this election. And I'm hoping that that shows up um, in terms of voter turnout as well on election day. Oh,
1: that's <laughs> we'll that's going to be another story. Yeah. Uh, we have. Two city uh, uh, school board trustees who are unopposed. Uh, school boards. There are some people who are saying, "What do we need those elected spots for?" Uh, c- David, do you have a view of that?
3: Well, well, I do actually. It, it's uh, changed over the years because I, the school board was always at least a good place, uh, an important place in terms of policy making. But it was also a good place for. People interested in public service to understand a little about the process. But if I had to choose today, I would say it is time for to take away the the uh, the responsibilities, some responsibilities of the board of uh, edu- board of the the, uh, the the board of education, because it seems to me that they should be simply worrying about the quality of education, and they should leave, for example, uh, real estate, uh, the, the use of land, and all of that. Uh, to
1: the city council, uh, Karen, what do you think? Is it time to get rid of these uh,
2: school board trustee seats? To be honest with you, I'm I'm more inclined to get rid of the, to get rid of those positions than not, because the reality is so much of what's determined in terms of wage settlement, in terms of curriculum, it's all really done by the province now. And you know, the school board trustees are there, I guess, to deal with parents who have very specific concerns relative to what's happening in their local schools, which is important to have that. Relationship and that representation, but but the reality is uh, they don't do much, and and part of what happens when you elect people to a position where they don't have much to do, they end up creating things to do, and and they can create some problems, and we've seen that there's been some really strange behaviors um, coming out of the school board, and you know maybe they shift uh, the school board trustees rather, and you know and maybe to David's point, um, you know he, there there might be that. Possibility of looking at, to those trustees to be dealing with land matters, but because even still, I, I think that there is not good utilization in terms of how they, um, you know, some some schools are so overpopulated, some are not utilized. Um, but there is there there needs to be a better way of building new infrastructure, and nobody seems to be charged with that. So maybe that, that instead of running. A, for districts at large and representing local school issues, that maybe there's a more strategic view of how these school boards can make better decisions around building new infrastructure where it's needed. Uh, When you're referring to weird behavior, do you want to be specific? Well, it was a couple years ago. There was a big dust-up between – I think it was was actually the local representative of my area – Um, got involved in some sort of strange altercation and then was accused of being verbally abusive. And then there was even some fisticuffs, not fisticuffs, but some pushing that got involved. Anyway, I can't remember the issue, but I just thought that's very strange behavior for our elected school board trustees. Because that's certainly not how we want our kids to behave in the classroom.
1: Uh yeah and uh well there there've been a, a you know some activism I know that there was uh you know th- there were complaints about racism in the school and school board trustees did take the lead on that one
4: Yeah, that was something I think we saw late last year, earlier this year, there was, unfortunately, the teacher who came to school, oh, it was Halloween, um, in in blackface, and and I know that the school board trustees did take an active role in, um, you know, reaching out to parents to apologize and remedying that behavior, but I'm not really certain either what their role is. I mean, it's been a long time since I've been in school. I don't know any, Mm -hmm. like, uh, elementary or high school students right now, like, in school, but... um, It it, it was always my understanding that the province was responsible for education. So, you know, like you you said, there are certain instances, you know, with um, addressing things like racism. And I think uh, uh, Karen's point was, uh, and and David, both um, of maybe using these trustees to handle land matter issues, kind of allocating resources and things like that might be a better use of their time and energy. But... um, I'm I'm not really certain why they exist. <laughs> do we do we know
1: how much they cost? And and I'm also familiar with this job. It seems to be like a little training ground. It certainly was for Michael Ford. Mm. It's like okay, you go go run, get in as a school trustee, and then uh, uh, I was going to say Bob's your uncle, but it's actually <laughs> Doug's your uncle. <laughs>
4: Doug's your uncle. <laughs>
1: uh, David. I mean, has it traditionally been that?
3: Well, no, it, it really was a training ground for people who wanted to get involved in elected public ser- services, and that was a good. It was a good role. You learned the rudiments of local government, all of that. But, but I think with the Harris government, but I'm not sure. But a while ago, um, and I was involved with a thing known as the Who Does What panel between levels of government. Who should be doing what? Um, it, one of the one of the I think significant no- notions was to get to change the role of the school board to be primarily concerned with the quality of education and the issues that may arise, like racism in the schools, whatever it might be. But that should be done by perhaps a, an expansion of local parent, parent-teachers parent associations. So it's that, that kind of approach. Hmm.
1: And does anybody know how much it's cost? I mean, school trustees don't make that much money. I But I think, like, the last time I looked, it was something like $5,000, but I bet it's more now.
3: Yeah, they were reduced considerably because... I think, again, it was the Harris administration that actually wanted to get rid of school boards. But it was, it's a much more difficult thing than, than you might think, because you have to also get rid uh, you can't just get rid of the public board. We have four school boards. And, and, and of course, the second largest is the, is the Catholic school board, a separate school board. And that they have a constitutional uh, right to be there, and there has to be major, major surgery done in, in order to change that. That's why I think they did not complete the job of getting rid of school boards and changing to advisory bodies around schools.
4: Uh, I've got the numbers here, uh, Libby. I just looked it up. According to this advocacy group, FixOurSchools.ca, the average trustee in Ontario gets paid $11,468, but that's actually up quite a bit from the numbers reported by the Globe Mail in 2014, which, when they were paid $5,900 a year, plus right. an extra amount based on how many school uh, students are enrolled in the school. So it's, it's, not, it's not a significant amount um, of money. It's not a full-time kind of salary there or anything. Okay.
1: But there's a lot of them and there's a constitutional (laughs) (laughs) issue, but we don't really know what they do and what purpose they serve. Like with so much else, Um, getting to that ferry. So uh, to me, uh, some of this was really strange. The ferries are old, we know that, so there was a ferry accident. I thought that it was a really kind of knee-jerk, non-customer service reaction saying, okay, too bad, the rest of the summer is, is you know, a mess in terms of getting to the island, which a lot of people want to get to, and then suddenly all better.
2: Karen? Yeah, it's... I mean, I think that's the issue, right, is the communication, in that whether there was a good explanation or not for the ferry accident, um, it, it, it didn't make logical sense that suddenly service would be interrupted till the end of the summer and then, uh, and then just reinstated without any explanation as to what happened and why. Um, so it leaves people just feeling that, that, to your point, I don't know if I want to get on the ferry. <laughs> <laughs> so whether you've reinstated the service or not, I, I, I don't know that I want to do that. And so I think that there needs to be a bit of a clear path of communication as to, you know, what happened, what's been done to fix it, and why is it okay to get back on a ferry and resume service levels to their previous uh, level? Because the reality is the island is a very attractive destination for a lot of people. And so having a reliable service is an important city function. And it seems that they could do a better job with communicating exactly what's going on here.
1: Uh, David, uh, and yes. were you aware yes. that the ferries are so old?
3: Oh yes, the ferries are very old, and we've had some great success with ferries, and they're part of the romance to me of uh, of the Toronto story. But it, it needs to. I guess there's two points that I would uh, agree with, and I think they've already been made. But it underscores the great value of the ferry service to the island. It's an exciting thing if you're if you're kids and you've got small children and your parents and so on. So it's it underscores the value of it. Secondly though, uh I think it was Karen who mentioned it, the the lack of, of, of uh understanding of any sense that they have a responsibility to explain things to the public, they should they they should really be ashamed of themselves. Uh
1: yeah, it seems that uh, you know, a lot of our public officials uh, have that particular disease. <laughs>
4: like i'll tell you i will not be getting on the ferry to go over to the island after seeing the videos and after hearing about everyone um who was there's 12 people injured uh witnesses who were aboard said that it was worse than they had been in car crashes it was worse than that it was more jarring than that like how terrified those people must have been everyone on board um and then without any explanation as to what went wrong i mean it crashed into the into the dock um they're just going to put it back into service like i think that it would be very scary to get back on any of those ferries without knowing why? Maybe, I mean, they're saying that it meets Transport Canada standards and that it will be running at reduced service, but it's still running. So what happened and how are people going to be confident that it's not going to happen again? Um, I I think they need to say something. Well,
1: you know, it was the first Collision. I'm not going to say accident because who knows right. if it was an accident. <laughs> yeah, uh, in, in a very long time. That's true. Yeah, and uh, but I would imagine if there's going to be some investigation, you know, we'll hear about it next year.
4: Mm. True. Maybe. I just no, I just was wondering why they would put it back into service, like just like okay, now everything is good without kind of revealing what went wrong.
1: David, go ahead.
4: No, no, it's just one one uh, one celebrated
3: accident some years ago. The uh, the uh, the ferry boat ran into Captain John's restaurant boat oh, and right. sank it, and sank it, <laughs> and, and, sank uh, it. Yes. and Captain John always maintained that he was invaded by the Metro Work <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, That'd be a, a, a lot of soggy dinners.
5: <laughs> a lot of soggy dinners.
1: Yeah, you don't want that. So... Apparently, we are in election campaign mode here. And, David, I know you're involved with the revitalization of Ontario Place, and some people are saying that should be an election issue, and what we see so far is a travesty.
3: Well, yeah, I have not called it a travesty, but there's a couple of things that need to be said. It's a great gem on the waterfront. Uh, It it deserves, uh, I think, all of the public uh, uh, discussion you can get. We've had quite a bit now, but it seems to have been cut off, and and it seems to me there are a couple of things. One, um, the idea that we should be changing or we should be redesigning Ontario Place without at the same time making sure it's connected to and a part of the celebration of of the Canadian National Exhibition site, those two sites need to be dealt with together some time ago ken greenberg a great toronto architect i yes. did a, a piece that was i think outstanding in terms of integrating uh, those two sites it allows you to create the making of money on the exhibition site which has become very much while at the same time maintain the traditional understanding of ontario place as a as a place where people can go on en family enjoy themselves and enjoy nature
1: is it too late for that? I mean, the, the RFP uh, has been granted to this company, and they're actually working with a local company, Diamond Schmidt, that has a very good reputation, but people are hating on this still, Karen.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's just because what they're proposing is so different from, from what is there now. And um, I, you know, I did read an article, and it it did it it kind of spoke to what we're losing, which is at the time that Ontario Place was built, there was a lot of pride around what we were doing in Ontario and the Cinesphere and you know the um, the water park. It was it was really about celebrating Ontario, and it was a place to go and and be proud of. And now it's a it's a, it's it, from my perspective, emerging as a bit more of a commercial center that's really d- down there to draw tourism. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's nothing to highlight that it's Ontario. I mean, what they're proposing could be built anywhere. Um, It just happens to be built on our waterfront. So, you know, I don't know if it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. It's just going to be very different than what's there now. And, um, and it will, it will mark a major shift into what that land was originally envisioned for to what it the purpose that it could be serving in the future, which is just a tourist destination.
1: Well, I don't know. Warren. when was the last time you went to Ontario Place?
4: I'm actually a big fan of Ontario Place. I'm not going to lie. I love to ride my bike and rollerblade down there. Um, I think what the wind government did with it, like revitalizing the Eastern Island, opening up Trillium Park, was really, really nice. And it still kind of showcases the nature of Ontario. They've got signage for all the different type of trees and wildlife there. And I'm concerned, I guess, about the new proposal, just kind of like Karen said, taking away some of that you know, Ontario celebration and, and turning into a huge commercial complex. Like people would say in the past, it's like our backyard in the city. For people downtown who don't have backyards like me, Ontario Place is a great place to go with your friends, have a picnic, um, you know, ride around, go see a concert at Budweiser stage. If they bring in this massive, and they are, like it looks like, bringing this massive Thermae Spa, that does not seem to be for the people of Toronto. It, it seems more to be drawing people in from other parts of the country and the world to experience. So I, it will probably be great economically for Ontario Place, but I think Toronto will definitely lose something by turning it into this, you know, big, big uh, center of commerce. Uh, that said, I do like the renovation plans for Budweiser Stage because that is a dope venue, and I'm glad that they're putting mm-hmm. more into that. Uh, you
1: know, I'm not so sure, because I think, to a certain extent, spas have had their peak moment, and it's kind of down. I mean, that's that's not really based on very much of anything, and I'm trying to think, if I were a tourist, would I want to spend some of my, you know, two, three days here in a spa, because that takes time, and it's, it's indoors, and really you can get spa'd anywhere.
4: Yeah, this is the one of those big European style yeah. super spas. And, yeah. and I don't think I've seen anything like that in Ontario before. So I think you're right, though. Like, once people get over the novelty, I don't know how much they'll be like, let's go back. I mean, there are lots of places like this around the world. It, it could draw people in initially. But yeah, like, is that somewhere people are going to spend an entire vacation? Uh,
3: uh, well, I, I, let me let me say that I, I think it's important to remember that that the Ontario flights, and I think it's already been mentioned, was not supposed to be for tourists. It was Mm -hmm. for an expanding Toronto and Ontario and to show the kinds of things that occurred in in Ontario and to to offer some pride in them. Um, And and I think that the William William Davis uh, Park uh, that was built by the Wood Government um, uh, is clearly within that tradition. Mm -hmm. I think the current proposals are not. And that's why I think you need to have more commercial do all the commercial stuff on, on the exhibition site, but let's return Ontario Place to at least the spirit of what we intended it to be. And that's a celebration that you didn't require a lot of money to spend in order to celebrate Ontario.
1: Well, you, you I mean, even parking there is expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and let's bring yeah, back that's...
3: the
4: log ride. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: speaking, speaking of the exhibition. So we are having the first one since the pandemic, uh, What's your take on how it's going? Silence. No one's been. Okay, I've outed you. I
2: haven't been either. No, I haven't been. Although, I, I can say, I, with the kids and I would look forward to going to, to the X um, every year. It was sort of a, 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 a tradition. and. And it wasn't even that we had the Tiny Tim donuts. We just we like to go and walk around and just experience all of the, uh, you know, some of the rides and play the games and you know try the food. And it was just such a family experience, and it was really enjoyable. Um, this year, for a couple reasons, it slipped under the radar. But I'm I'm very glad it's back, and um, you know have to make a mental note to see if I can convince my teenage kids to go back with me
1: <laughs> well maybe yeah. they'll want some of that mustard ice cream that's right
3: <laughs>
1: no, I, it is I, a tradition.
0: That,
3: that that's been the great experience with the ex uh, I'll be going this year I go every year I have not missed a year since it came back after the first after the second World war uh so i go but 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 as i think it was Karen saying it, to walk around just enjoy it it's a it's a, a clearly a different experience than it used to be but It's still a nice cultural habit to have.
1: Okay, well, that's great that you're going. (laughs) What about you, Lauren? Are you going?
4: I haven't been yet this year. I haven't had a chance. Um, I have... my own wedding coming up in a few weeks, so timing's a oh, little yeah. tight. You guys like yeah. it? Thank you. So I'm, I'm going to try to get down there, though. I do love the X, despite the fact that it's always so bittersweet to see the Ferris wheel rise, knowing that the end of summer is mm-hmm. here, but I love the atmosphere there, so we'll see if my fiance and I can maybe get out this week and sometime just try some of that mustard and ketchup ice cream. I'm really, really curious <laughs> <about that. laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated about your wedding.
1: There are a lot of people getting married, and, and it's changing, and we're hearing that it's, it's gotten so expensive Oh,
4: and, yes, it has. <laughs> uh,
1: that people are cutting back on lists and all of that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I have so much to say. Uh, <laughs> we can at another date. But, uh, yeah, we're doing about 150 people. But getting a venue was very difficult because of all the pandemic backlog. So I'm lucky we're just being able to have it when we want it.
1: Oh, okay, yes. and. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, there's a lot of family stuff happening. I have to say, I'm a little distracted because I I just got a note from uh, one of my best friends, and um, her uh, her latest granddaughter was just born. Oh, congratulations! So sir. congratulations to Sally Guy and uh, the new baby is Vera Jane Foster Barton, six pounds thirteen ounces. Aww. And I like that an old fashioned Whoa. name, Vera. Vera Jane. I like that. Vera Jane. Oh, Beer Jane, uh, people want to talk about Ontario Place and the X. Okay, let's go to Simone in Parkdale. Hi, Simone. Oh, hi, Libby. Yes, I saw something uh, with regards to the Ontario Place uh, suggestions.
6: I tried, I um, saw something on television years ago. It, I believe it was in Japan, and they had this huge, long, um, cavernous place. It was um, covered, and they had. it was snow. One part was higher than the other. And it was the people who skied. And um, and toboggans, whatever. And I thought that would be a great place to have an interior place. It would be used throughout the uh, year. And tourists might like something like that, too. You could rent skis up at the top. And at the bottom, you could have an alpine-type, you know, um, uh, skiing uh, or, you know, restaurant or something. And uh, murals on the wall like alpine mountains and so on and so forth. I think that would be great.
1: Uh, we already have a spot for it. I think we don't <laughs> need another. Simone, thanks for your call. Thank you. Let's go to Evie in Toronto. Hi, Evie. Hi. Um, regarding the acts, my uh, sister and her husband took their
6: grandson. And uh, I can tell you, as a boomer, it is like uh, night and day. The prices, you can't go as a kid like we did. And, uh, you know, you, you just can't. It, it, it's it's so expensive. The kiddie rides are way, way far from when you get in. Uh, they had to walk a long way, but um, the prices and it, it's just, it's not like when we were we were kids. We used to be able to
4: go, you know, go on the rides 10 times and not now. So it's a whole different thing. But do they still have the animals? The farm animals? Sorry? Do they, they still have the farm animals? <laughs>
1: oh. Evie, are you on the ferry? Hello? Hello. Hello. No, I'm in the middle of traffic. I don't oh. know what the, that is. <laughs> Sounds like a schooner. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm just going to hang up. They've one. got okay. There's yeah, there's cr- <laughs> there's a ferry <laughs> horn in the middle of traffic. You know, nothing's going to surprise me with that anymore. But that's that's just that's just crazy.
4: That sounded like an old tugboat or something. Yeah, I
1: know. And we, we've we heard that there's a tugboat where that's going to be an Airbnb. I mean, wow. Okay. Um, I don't know where to go from there.
4: Wild times in and around the GTA. Um I know this, you just mentioned the tugboats. So I'll say it's theater too. The tugboat, the little like, children's character, you'll be docked off the har- uh, harbor front in Hamilton. You'll be able to stay there as an Airbnb. Not really a municipal issue, but interesting and and cheap, 22 bucks. Yeah, yeah, I was very surprised by that.
1: Okay, I don't think you're going to get in. And do you remember a couple of years back, there was, I don't even remember what it was, there was this huge controversy over this big
4: duck. The duck. And it cost a huge amount of money to bring the duck. Millions of dollars. That was the big rubber duck that came to the (laughs) Toronto Harbor. It came back several years and it brought in millions of dollars in tourism, but it, yeah, that was a big controversy. I'm sure. uh, David and Karen also remember the big duck. Anyone?
1: <laughs> no, they I'm have to defend
2: great idea the duck. Uh,
1: let's hope that Ontario Place does not turn into
2: a big duck. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I do think there's something to be said about the affordability issue, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's my hope that as all these things get developed. You know, and it, it, if the act really is becoming unaffordable for families, then it becomes less of a tradition. And and so we need to be mindful as a city, whatever we're build, building, that we do make sure it's accessible and affordable to families.
1: Well, it isn't. I mean, that used to be an issue, that you could take all the kids yeah. and go down there and, and well, now I'm... I think I knew what a pass was. I've forgotten, but it's a lot of money.
4: Yeah, even the rides that you go on, the tickets for the rides. Remember the last time I was there? It was it was a lot of money. If you want to ride, like, even just a couple, it was the... Yeah, I don't remember the exact price, but I could definitely see a family struggling to afford that.
1: Okay, it's uh, time to wrap things up. So we'll do a little looking ahead thing here. Does anybody have any sense of what the municipal election issue will be if there will be
2: one. Karen? Well, I think you know housing is the one that we're talking about. I think a sleeper issue is going to be um, property taxes because the standard line has been property taxes will be increased at the rate of inflation. And the rate of inflation right now, the last cr- I read was 8%. And so if property taxes are gonna increase 8%, uh, that needs to be talked about. Good point. David
3: yeah it's all all taxes are always in order to talk about I think that the 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 mayor is trying and and others but certainly the mayor is trying to make housing uh, a, a significant if not the significant issue I hope so uh, I think that he's on the right track Inter- interesting enough he's he's t- talking about housing and affordability something the province isn't
1: well yeah, I don't know how you actually really impact affordability, though real estate's been dropping. Lauren?
4: Yeah, I agree. It seems like the direction Tory's going in, um, housing affordability, um, increasing supply, it, that's going to be a major election issue. But I, I also see, and I hope to see some discussion about, you know, cyclists and pedestrian fatalities where you were saying earlier, um, they've gone way up. Uh, and. About Vision Zero, like, it's never worked. Like, let's let's kind of make these streets let's safer. Let's acknowledge that. Yes, like, yeah, this so I hope that's... does not work. No, and something needs to be done. So I'm hoping that emerges as an election issue, because nobody wants to die on the street or feel like they're going to die every time they ride their bike downtown. So. Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, on that unhappy note, sorry. <laughs> sorry. And, and congratulations on your upcoming nuptials. Thank Thanks you. so much, Lauren O'Neill. Karen Stinson, David Crompy, we'll talk again soon.
2: Thanks, Lily. Same Thanks rights. very much.
1: Bye-bye. We're Bye-bye. taking a break. And when we come back, another municipal issue, another blog TO issue for sure. tip uh, tipflation. We've been talking about everything going up. Well, the tips you pay also have by a lot. We'll talk about that when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. <laughs> Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Are you tipping more than you
1: did before the pandemic? Most of us are, according to a survey from Restaurants Canada, and that goes for takeout as well as dining in. And the theory is pandemic hardships made us want to help out workers. And by doing this, by by sharing some money with them, But at this point, uh, the word is that we are being guilted by those tipping prompts, some of them with options up to 30%. Now, frankly, I find that annoying. I actually tip more if the prompts make it easy to pass or to set your own amount. Uh, Some make it very cumbersome and almost impossible to complete a transaction without clicking on one of their set amounts. So, it's called tipflation. What do you think of tipflation? Uh, and apparently the average amount in Ontario, which is we are the highest tippers in the country. I'm a little <laughs> proud of that. Uh, and the average amount has gone from 15% to eighteen point. 9%. So let me know what you think. 416 360 0740. Toll free One eight six six 740 4740. And now I'd like to welcome Renee Soon, BlogTO's resident food
7: expert. Hi, Renee. Hi, Libby. Great to have you on again. Okay, <laughs>
1: great to have you on again. So, what's with this tipflation? I mean, it seems to be a little
7: out of hand, frankly. Well, I feel like before we talk about um, you know some of the potential, I guess, issues, or I wouldn't even say issues, like what led to this, is that we also have to be very aware that this particular survey came out from results that were gathered in April of this year. So we're talking about four months ago, and I think we really have to examine the landscape at that time, you know, uh, as Torontonians, Canadians, basically any citizen in the world who've been in well, had this pandemic sort of situation. They've all been exposed to a situation where you know there are closures, and here in Ontario, we've had the mo- the longest, really, um, out of the rest of, the, of most of, most of the country. And so we're seeing a lot of operators closed for eighteen months. Um, a lot of citizens who normally patron restaurants always also not having those opportunities to dine in or or enjoy those moments of being in a restaurant. So at around April. With the you know, relaxing of some of the rules uh, and also people being vaccinated and being uncomfortable to come back into dining rooms, um, this is the point where they're now coming in with somewhat um, new, if you want to call it, new uh, practices of having been tipping quite a bit because, you know, during the pandemic, and maybe slightly before they started to realize, as you had noted, that it's kind of hard for people in the restaurant industry, especially given the situation with restaurant closures and the rising cost of food and um, minimum wage increases, and a lot of operators were struggling through that that whole period of, of, of pandemic restrictions. And so they feel generous. And we see terminals that normally they're handed having still those same numbers, and people are used to that number. I feel like at this point in time, if you ask a lot of restaurateurs and what they're seeing in how people are behaving with tipping, um, you'll notice that maybe that, that has changed a bit. Some might be still very much motivated to continue being very generous, and others might have gone back to what they're, they're most comfortable with. Because as you said, you know, a tipping is a very personal Decision,
1: but I, I I find some of those prompts. Mm-hmm. It, it's not so much the tipping, uh, but it's the. I mean, I just find it a bit much to ask me or someone mm-hmm. else thirty percent on top of price, which is already up. Which is not to say that there is no case where I would give them
7: thirty percent. Exactly, Um, and I think that's the one thing that is is that for any diner they shouldn't or any customer they shouldn't feel guilted into that. But I think it is a mentality thing. When you see those numbers, you feel that it's a a very strong suggestion, Um, and and I feel like at the end of the day, uh, for those who are on the the end of the terminal the deciding, you know, what they're comfortable with giving. It really is what you're comfortable with giving.
1: Okay, let's take a call from Joe
5: in Mississauga. Hi, Joe. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I'm, you know, with this tipping, now, when I went down to the Argo game, now since, um, since a pandemic, now there's no cash anymore down at the Argo games for anything, your tickets, your concessions, anything. So you go and buy a couple of beer, and uh, they, they put that, Cash machine in front of you, and there's a minimum of 11, from 11 percent rate to 25 percent. And it's like you said, it's hard to figure out why you know how, how not to to avoid giving them a tip. No,
1: 11 percent is turning uh, around, cheap. opening
5: a door, taking two beers out of the cooler, dropping it on the counter, and then you're you know you're already paying 14 dollars for a beer, and then so <laughs> yes. you buy two beers, that's 28 dollars plus the 14 uh, percent sales uh, uh, tax, then another 11 percent for the tip. Oh, and that's another thing. So you're paying thirty five dollars for two beers and all she's doing is turning around and, and and grabbing two beers out of the cooler and dropping them on the counter. And, and, and right away you're obligated to give them a minimum of eleven percent.
1: She better do it quickly because there are probably a lot of people who want yeah. their
5: beer. <laughs> uh it, it, well, that too yeah then then they can't get you out of there fast enough because you know there's the next person's lined up right behind you. So you're paying eleven percent to get rushed for overpriced beer and turn around and go back to your seat.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, you wanted to go to the game. <laughs> yes. well, I, don't,
5: I, don't mind, uh, I don't mind tipping the uh, the vendor when he comes to the seats because oh. that's a whole different ball game. But you know the people, and like I said, they they just they push it right in front of you, and they you know, and you can't tap your card until you put the tip money exactly. in. Exactly, mm-hmm.
1: and I was going to point out that the tip money is on top of the tax. That's another mm-hmm. thing that really yeah. annoys people, being uh, p- paying a tip on top of the tax. Uh, oh. We just lost the next caller. Patience, people. Okay, Joe, thanks for your call.
7: I totally hear you, Joe. I know that there's a lot of people, like even myself, sometimes when you go to um, regular, you know, I mean, just very quick service things where in the past, traditionally, you might not even have to tip or um, there's the option. And now as you, before you even cash out, you do have that suggested tip. Um, and sometimes I do feel guilty if I if I don't do the full amount and maybe 11% or 20%, as you've said. Um, but I think that's the one thing is that, uh Part of it uh, that we noticed, um, as, uh, just chatting with people in the industry, is that for some operators, they haven't gone to changing that. And it's as as many as as much as people are continuing to tip very generously. They're like, you know, it's kind of like, what's not a broken system if everyone's feeling generous? Then they're like, that helps everyone involved. Well,
1: okay, I didn't realize there was talk about changing the system if it's
7: well. I'm not what? sure if everyone's thinking of changing. It's just I think when you look at how During the pandemic, when people were tipping much more generously and all the terminals had changed to reflect this, that in this sort of post lockdown state, a lot of operators haven't changed it back because there hasn't been a change necessary, I guess, that no one has like, I guess, like publicly Um, petitioned against this or um, I feel like some might give you the other option and if you get that then possibly you can tap that and put the amount that you're most comfortable with but well
1: I I like it when I get that Mm -hmm. but but most of them they they don't even have 15% anymore yes 18% Um, people uh, I'm gonna uh, I'm just looking at the time. Do we have time to take more calls? And actually, we probably don't. So uh, what do you think is the larger tipping here to stay, Renee?
7: Um, I feel like as we all are starting to come back into this sort of regular routine of going out and doing what we had had always enjoyed doing pre pre-pandemic restrictions, that people will start to look also at their pocketbooks. I mean, going out and doing these things, it is a treat. Um, I think that's one thing to keep in mind that it's technically, for most of us, going out to eat is not necessarily a daily sort of activity. And so when we are coming to that point of do we consider tipping as part of that overall expense? I think that the answer is yes. Uh, we all recognize that um, the restaurant industry, even though they're now coming back into operation, they did suffer a huge hit. Um, many are still in that post-pandemic. And it's technically the pandemic's not over, but in that post-pandemic recovery, uh, and that's still Uh, It's tough. Um, We've got restaurant workers who are starting to get back into things. And so, you know, the the assistance, any kind of assistance to help them um, with getting back on their feet after this long, hard time is probably something to keep in mind.
1: Okay, Renee Soon, thank you so much for that. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, we are going to get the real goods on what is actually in that bill in terms of. Uh, being able to send alternate level of care elderly patients to nursing homes they don't necessarily want to go to. And what is up with the co-payments on that? We'll be talking to Jane Meadis on the other side of the break.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Well, the information on the new law that would allow hospitals to send ALC patients to a nursing home, not of their choosing is coming out in dribs and drabs, and there's a lot of misinformation. So we just learned that those patients can be charged co-payments for the equivalent of the amounts they would pay in long-term care. And apparently this happens all the time. Sometimes they can be charged more, apparently. When and how will the new law impact that? Let's go to Jane Medes, staff lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the elderly. Jane? Good afternoon, Libby. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Fine. So uh, let's just go through this. So this business about being able to charge a copayment for patients who are in hospital waiting for a nursing home, that's been on the book since 1979, Right.
6: They've had the ability to do it since 1979. I'm not sure whether they did it um, at that point. We know that since 1996 they've certainly done it. Um, and this is equivalent to what you would pay for uh, basic accommodation and long term care. So, but for the fact that you're, you know, not able to move um, into the long term care because there's no bed, Um, they can charge you that rate. And there's rate reductions and things like that are available. And that's very standard um, in most hospitals to most people.
1: Mm -hmm. So that is not a
6: surprise. No, that happens every day. And in fact, you know, it's one of the parts of the process of uh, sort of going and waiting to long-term care is that, you know, it it, uh, ensures that people aren't staying in hospital just because they don't want to pay for
1: long-term care. Uh-huh, yes, and even the liberal opposition leader made that point, and that's important uh but apparently, there are cases when hospitals could charge the quote uninsured rate, and that's fifteen hundred bucks a day
6: well, so that it depends on the hospital it's um you know open to the hospital to 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 sort of set those fees generally and what when those are charged are when people are offered a bad in a home that is on their uh, long-term care home waiting list so that they have applied to those homes, and one of those homes is offered, and they turn it down. They cannot be forced, um, you know, as with this legislation, I mean, you cannot be, you know, physically taken and forced into a long-term care home, Um, but you lose your right to be covered by OHIV if you've refused a proper offer, and so that happens the reality of you know when it can be charged happens very rarely unfortunately we see a lot of hospitals threatening those charges in other situations currently um so if you're not you know putting homes that the hospital wants you to put down on your list they might threaten to charge you those rates if this legislation or when this legislation passes um the placement coordinator will be choosing homes for you and putting on the list and those will become valid offers If a bed is offered and so we expect the hospitals within charge in those situations
1: okay so i'm uh let's just go through this carefully because this is very important to people so right now Mm -hmm. you can choose up to five homes so you can choose up to five homes generally
6: if you're a crisis patient and currently all patients in hospitals are crisis patients Who are applying, and if you're currently a crisis patient, you may. You're not required to, but you may um, apply to more homes. Um, But it's generally a maximum of five, not a minimum.
1: Okay, but now if you haven't chosen five homes, uh, the hospital placement person can choose them for you. That's. Correct, so what right? the
6: new legislation says is that the, it doesn't matter, you could have 10 homes on the list, but if all 10 of those homes are deemed to have two long waiting lists, the placement coordinator from Home and uh, Community Care Support Services can choose homes for you that would not be your uh, what you would want to choose, may not be in the area that you want to live in, uh, you may visit them you don't like them. Um, So they can, but they can put them on the list, and those become valid choices.
1: So, uh, can people protect themselves by picking their own five places? Well,
6: no, because because the hospital um, people are on crisis. There is no maximum number, and so what people can do is try to pick homes that do have some shorter waiting lists. So, try to be reasonable, not just have one on the list. Um, you know try to be reasonable in their choices see if there are places that have a shorter waiting list that would be acceptable to them and that may get them through without having the placement coordinator choose for them
1: okay I'm going to take a call from Gordon in Sarnia Gordon you've had experience with this hello
8: a family member in, in hospital, and it was a very frustrating experience in that the hospital was exceedingly aggressive about saying, you know, this person has to leave, and there was there's no funding. Like, I don't know if people realize that, but unless you're in dire straits and have no income and no, no assets... When you leave the hospital and go into any uh, assisted living or long-term care facility, you're expected to pay 100% of the bill. And in this in this situation, that wasn't an option for our family member because if they went into a, a assisted living or long-term care facility and were footing the bill, they would lose their house. And the hospital's attitude was... Oh, well, too bad that, you know, sell their house and use the proceeds from selling the house to pay for the bed they're going to go into. But my biggest frustration was that the things that that person, this family member, needed to have healed, had needed to have... Uh, fixed uh, an illness resolved hadn't yet been resolved, and unfortunately, our health care system is broken. Um, people think socialized medicine is so wonderful. Well, I got news for them it isn't, and it's now coming to a head, and it's going to get worse. But they don't seem to understand that you know they have a job to do right now because they're under so much pressure. As long as the person is medically stable. Their mandate is get them out the door and get them out as fast as they can. I have a friend who recently, his wife had a stroke. As soon as she was medically stable, they wanted her the heck out of the hospital. And he's 89, she's 86. He says, how are we supposed to manage? He said, we can't. He said, I can't lift her. I can't help her to the toilet, all the rest of these things. But the hospital's attitude is clear the bed. That's their mandate. It comes right from the top down, clear the bed, because they want to create space so somebody in eMERGE can come upstairs and go into the bed. I'm
1: going to let Jane respond to that. Thanks for you, Carl. I'm sorry your family member went through that. But, uh, yeah, uh, people, uh, part of the the issue with that is that they don't want people staying in hospital because they uh, are not able to pay the cost of long-term care.
6: So this is a typical call that we get. um, And I think there's a couple of things there is that, you know, long term care is subsidized. So I suspect that what this person was actually being told was to go to a retirement home, which is not subsidized. And so this is a very common thing to clear beds. If you can't take the person home, then you should go to a retirement home, which is private. It's not a health facility. It's a tenancy that sells you services. And those can cost, you know, if you have a lot of care, they can cost seven, ten, twelve thousand dollars 12000 a month. And, of course, most people can't afford that. Long-term care is subsidized. And so, uh,
1: right. But he was, uh, what I got from him was that mm-hmm. this person couldn't even for, afford the subsidized rate. Uh, yeah.
6: It, I mean... Everyone should be able to afford the subsidized rate. Sometimes there is a question about whether they can afford the subsidized rate and have a home in the community that they're not returning to, and that is a different question. Um, but, I mean, this is the kind of pressure that comes from the hospitals. And at the current situation, hospitals actually don't have any authority to, you know, deal with things like long-term care and placement and stuff, but this legislation will change that. And so... If that's the pressure they were getting before, you can just imagine with this legislation what's going to happen now when they're allowed to,
1: you know, do eligibility and, and take a much more um, aggressive role. And so uh, we're starting to run out of time. Are you worried about abuses here, or is do you see this as something that's necessary? Well, I mean, clearly something has to be done, but, you know,
6: this is you know again what we're seeing is the you know the ills of the healthcare system are being played out on the seniors so it's you know we're taking uh a you know a problem that we have which is Many long, you know, many ALC patients waiting for other things like rehab and chronic care and other things. But we're only forcing, we're only dealing with the, you know, what is not the majority, um, which is, you know, about 40% of these beds, uh, dealing with them and forcing them to go to places they don't want to go. We need to fix our healthcare system when we can't do that on the back of seniors. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, what are you telling people? Well, again, we're telling people to try to be reasonable with their, you know, um with their long-term care choices and try to make choices, you know, that, uh, you know, if they're able to leave the hospital and go to a place that may be not their first choice and wait there. I think that that's what, you know, we're certainly have always suggested to people um, because hospitals aren't great places to stay, but we're going to have to see how it plays out. We haven't seen the regulations yet. We haven't seen what's going to happen um but i suspect that there will be a lot of fights in this in with the new legislation.
1: Uh right and in terms of uh sending people to retirement homes which are extremely expensive this doesn't cover that does it?
6: No this does not allow and i think that's where people need to understand that this will not require people to go to um you know anything um like a retirement home or other kinds of, you know, spaces that you have to pay privately for.
1: Okay. Jane, anything else that you want people to know about this? And when are those regulations coming out? We don't know whether we, we understand
6: that the government is not sending this to committee. It's going to ram it through um, probably completing second and third reading in one day. Um, And it will be, you know, passed certainly by next week. Uh, regulations will come out, and there will be maybe a short window to 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 make uh, comments on it. We don't know, uh, but we you know really tell people if they're not happy with this legislation, they should be calling their MPPs, they should be calling the Minister of Long Term Care and the Premier um, to try to get them to change their course.
1: Okay, Jane, uh, I suspect this is going to be coming up again and again. And thank you so much for clarifying all of that for us. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye, Jane. Bye. That's uh, Jane Midas from the the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. That's all the time we have for today. Free-for-all Friday is coming up tomorrow. I'll be off for a few days. I'll see you next Tuesday.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.